The Nats Chat Podcast brought to you by Walters. This weekend, bottomless brunch starts at 11 a.m. on both Saturday and Sunday. Enjoy bottomless mimosas, Bloody Marys, Truly, and Bud Light for only $20 with your purchase of a brunch entree. This Saturday night, UFC 265, Jose Aldo taking on Pedro Munoz and main event Derek Lewis versus undefeated Cyril Gaon. Make your reservations for this week's events now at waltersdc.com slash reservation. On Sunday, Navy Yard is the place to be with the Hella Mega Tour featuring Weezer and Green Day at Nationals Park. Plus, DC United are playing at Audi Field at 8 p.m. Walters is the perfect place to hang out before either event. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Runners first and second. Benny kicks, delivers the pitch. Duval swings and a line drive fair. Past the diving keyboard. Down the left field line and foul ground. Hits off the angled wall. Run is scored. Over to third on the play. Goes Swanson and into second is Duval with a double. A run batted in. Again for Duval and three runs across the plate here in the inning. And it's now Atlanta 5 and Washington 3. Welcome to Nat Chat for Saturday, August 7, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, if you are a Nationals fan still invested in the outcomes of these games, our deepest condolences to you because the losing does continue. An 8-4 loss at the Atlanta Braves on Friday night in game one of a three-game series, game one of a six-game road trip. The Nats now have lost five straight. The Nats now are 9-23 and since the start of July. The Nats now a season-worst 12 games below 500 at 49-61. and You know, I was thinking about the five-game losing streak. Every game, it feels like, has more or less the same score. And all of these games pretty much have had a similar theme. The Nats don't pitch well. The Nats don't field well, or at the very least have like a costly defensive mistake or two, and the Nats don't hit well enough to make up for these things. And I suppose this is what you get when you trade away eight players for 12 prospects. That remains 100% the right way to have gone, but there's a cost associated with that, and (laughs) we're seeing that cost here over this recent stretch. So let me get this straight, Al. You're saying the Nats right now are not pitching well, hitting well, or playing defense well? Not particularly, no. Okay, that would tend to be what happens for a team that loses... 23 of 32, which by the way, was worst in the National League over that stretch and like percentage points better than the Texas Rangers for the worst record in baseball. And remember, this all happened or the first half of this, more than half of it happened before the sell-off at the trade deadline. Now there were injuries, other things going on, but this goes all the way back to July 1st. So yeah, there was that point there where we said, boy, they're actually kind of still on the fringes of the race and maybe there's a chance they could try to go for it. Well, 
I think the writing was on the wall and we saw where this was headed and it's only going to continue down this path now with the roster that they're putting out there. It's tough to watch. It is tough to watch some nights because there's just not a whole lot of feeling of optimism as far as the game itself is concerned. They took a lead in this game, 3-2 in the fifth inning. Did you feel like, okay, they got this now, like they're going to win this game? No, you just don't ever have that feeling. It takes so much to go right now for them to win a game, even when they take a lead into the ninth inning. That's no guarantee. And they never got close to that point tonight. It is tough. And it's especially tough when they're putting a lineup out there that doesn't have Juan Soto. And when the young guys who are sort of all the rage right now, these are the guys that we're going to be focusing on when they have a rough night, both at the plate and in the field, which was the case in this one. So the last thing the Nationals need in this nightmare of a season, and that's what this has been. This has been a nightmare of a season in a lot of ways. Like so many things have gone wrong when you really take a step back and take stock of everything. The last thing the Nats need is anything to happen to Juan Soto. He is the franchise. He is the Ferrari. The Ferrari cannot get dinged in any way, especially over these final two largely meaningless months of baseball in terms of the outcomes of the games. These are not meaningless games, though, in terms of the development of the roster and the trek that the franchise is on overall. But you're clearly not going to risk anything health-wise with Soto over these final two months. He does not play on Friday night, I think smartly so, due to tweaking his right knee while running the bases in the bottom of the ninth of the 7-6 loss to Philadelphia at Nationals Park on Thursday. What do we know about the knee? I guess it was he could have maybe pinch hit in this game. What's kind of the feeling here about what's going on with Soto in the knee? So he went through some pregame drills, some agility drills. He tried to hit. And the way Davey put it before the game was like, if Juan says to him, hey, I'm 100% absolutely good to go, then he would play. But if he was anything less than 100%, they weren't going to take that chance. He's going to do some activation stuff and hit, and then uh, we'll see what happens here in a little bit. Now, over the course of the game, he was feeling all right. So he went down to the cage and he took some swings. And yes, he was available to pinch hit in the ninth if the right situation came up. But they never got to that point, obviously, because they were they scored an extra run there in the ninth inning, but they never got close enough where you know it was worth it to put Soto up there to pinch hit. But the feeling is he'll go through the process again on Saturday before the game, and they hope that he might be able to play. But if there's any question about it, if they're not 100% sure that he's good to go, they'll probably err on the side of caution again. And yes, that is the right thing to do with him. There is no reason take any chances with him right now. But boy, does that lineup look dreadful without him, does it not? And it's not even like he's been hitting great here lately. But I mean, talk about a lineup that just does not look imposing on paper. And we kind of saw it play out that way. I know they scored late, but up to that point had three hits until the ninth inning. And two of the three runs they had scored to that point came without benefit of a hit. That was a pretty pathetic offensive performance from a group of uh, not a lot of accomplished hitters. Yeah, well, take your time, Juan Soto, and don't play until you feel 100%, and then maybe wait a game and then play after something like that. But yeah, offense not nearly good enough. Four runs in the game, but on five hits, Nats total three walks. Uh, Nats for the game, two for eight with runners in scoring position. And the Nats did some of what they did in no small part because the Braves starting pitcher, Kyle Muller, was all over the place. I mean, it's not, you know, we, we talk about like Jeffrey Rodriguez not always knowing where the baseball is going. Muller, at various points in this game, I mean, he looked like he had no clue. Robles getting a second look at Muller as the Braves are in the shift. Three infielders on the left side, and the pitch is to the backstop, and this will score a run. Barrera will score, and that's the fifth time that Muller hits the backstop on the fly. He, in his outing, ultimately totals three wild pitches. How often does that happen? Three wild pitches. Tres Pereira gets on base via a walk, 
and advances in part due to two wild pitches, including scoring on a wild pitch. But even with Muller and his uh, control problems, the Nats still not able to do much offensively in the game. Well, three wild pitches officially, and I think there were two others that hit the backstop on the fly, but there just was nobody on base, so it doesn't count as a wild pitch. I mean, that's how off he was. It was really frightening to watch, and I don't know if that was just a question of grip. It looked like he was sweating a ton there. I know Tim Shovers, our producer, was actually there at the game. He's visiting Atlanta right now. Maybe he can tell us if it was really humid, really sweaty out there. It looked like it might have been a grip issue, but... I mean, Mueller was, like you said, all over the place. Tim is telling us, by the way, that there was no humidity. So that wasn't the issue for Mueller. I don't know what it was on this night. And hey, credit to the Nats for when they did get runners on base, taking full advantage of that. The best example, that was Gerardo Parra in the fifth, hit by pitch, takes second on the wild pitch. And then right after the mound conference, where you know they're just telling Mueller, like, hey, just focus on the plate. You can throw a strike. Parra takes off for third, just steals third off the pitcher. Totally. And that set the stage for a sack fly by Eric Fetty, who, by the way, that was his first career RBI. Never driven in a run in the big league. So there was a nice, happy moment for you. I don't know if you realized it, that that sack fly was your first RBI in the big leagues. Yeah, no, I knew for sure. You know, so, you know, credit to the guys for taking advantage of it when they could. But ultimately, you do actually need to put the bat on the ball and find empty grass somewhere to score runs. And they just could not do nearly enough of that in this game. No, and the Braves conversely did an excellent job of that. Terrific job Atlanta did of putting the baseball in play. Well, with the Nationals offense, a bright spot again was Carter Keboom. And that's the thing, right? Out of all of this darkness, you search for the light. And there is a light right now, at least offensively, in Carter Keboom. Here it comes. Swing a line drive left field. Base hit toward the line. Headed around third is Escobar toward the plate. He will score. Duvall's throw is not in time up the line. And Carter Keboom delivers another hit and another RBI. He's tied this ballgame at two in the fourth inning with his seventh RBI of the season. He is hitting in a manner in which I don't believe we've seen him hit so far in terms of his time at the major league level. Obviously, the bat is what made him the highly touted prospect he was not that long ago. He had not done well in previous major league stints as a batter. He's doing well, though, right now, and the sample size is starting to grow here. So Keboom has been the Nats' everyday starting third baseman here for you know a good chunk of time, which is totally the right way to go. And Carter had another RBI hit on Friday night. One for four with an RBI single, a one-out RBI single to left field on a 1-2 pitch in the top of the fourth inning. Carter Keboom entered this game having gone over his previous eight games 11 for 27 with two homers, a double, eight singles, and four walks. A decent chunk of these recent hits have been run-scoring hits, and he authors another one here on Friday night. I mean, you know, I know we're we're grasping for silver linings, but I don't think this is making something up here. Like, this is significant, the potential offensive maturation here of Carter Keeboom. Yeah, I agree, and the numbers are good, obviously. That's nice to see. But even beyond that, I think it's just the way he looks. He's hitting the ball with authority, which is not something we had seen from him with any consistency in the big leagues over the last several years. And doing it in important spots with runners in scoring position, driving in runners. Like you said, on a one-two pitch, it was a slider that he hit for the single. So all of that is very encouraging. Now, we need to see this over a much longer stretch to say that there's anything legitimate going on here. But like we were saying all along, if I'm Davey Martinez and Mike Rizzo, and I'm trying to figure out how to approach this with Carter Keboom, I'm telling him, you know what, buddy? You're playing every day for the next two months. There is no pressure on you anymore. You don't need to be looking over your shoulder. Just go out and play the game the way you know how to. And at the end of all that, we'll see where things are at. 
I don't know if that's worked, if that's what's going on here or not, but he does look much more confident at the plate, hitting the ball with authority, and he's even looking better in the field. You know, there were some plays early on. He had that stretch when the team was in Philly last week where he was botching plays left and right. And he had several nice plays in this game over the last few days. He's had some more nice plays at third base. Small sample and everything, yeah. But there are absolutely some encouraging signs from Keeboom. Now it's a matter of sustaining it over, you know, more than just a week or two. Yeah, the thing with this defense, which has been odd, is it's been more like a throwing issue than it has been an actual literal fielding issue. Like, he's catching baseballs, and at times he's making nice catches of baseballs. He's just had a hard time throwing the baseball, and he's also seemingly had some difficulty getting the baseball out of his glove. Like, that transition from glove to throwing hand has been a problem for whatever reason, but, you know, he is capable. Like, there's a reason he's played shortstop and third base, and Hopefully, he continues to trek in a positive direction that way. But the bat is what he's known for, and that he's brought it with the bat here has been good to see. Luis Garcia did have an RBI double on Friday night, although that essentially did come in garbage time. Two out first pitch, Ribby double in the top of the ninth inning. We continued to see Tres Barrera. He was back out there as an at-starting catcher. 0 for 3 with a walk and three strikeouts. And here's where we arrive at yet another costly defensive play for the Nats. There were some good defensive moments for the Nats on Friday night, but it's like, it's not always... What you do, it's when you do what you do, right? And you had the crucial Carter Keeboom miscue in the previous game, and you had Barrera with what proved to be a crucial miscue in this game on Friday night, a two-out catcher's interference error in the Braves' three-run fifth inning. Now, catcher's interference is a tricky deal. I mean, Barrera's glove, to me, it's like it barely made contact with Jorge Soler's bat as Soler swung. But that is catcher's interference. Like, that is the rule. So you have to be mindful of that when you're catching. And Barrera clearly wasn't mindful enough And then everything kind of fell apart there in that three-run fifth inning. So in the moment, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. And it's not this like, you know, mortal sin that was committed by Pereira, but it ended up looming large in that inning. Yeah, I mean, potentially the inning's over, if not for that catcher's interference. And what happened after that, and we'll get to it as we talk about Eric Fetty's outing, I mean, that was death by paper cuts after that. It was a brutal fifth inning that really turned the whole game around and, you know, probably won it for the Braves. But those little things we talk about, and, you know, as a young catcher, you just, you have to have a feel for that, a sense for that. Maybe this is a guy with a longer swing. Maybe this is a guy who stands a little deeper in in the batter's box. You just have to be aware of all these things. And I mean, yeah, it's a little bit of a fluke and maybe it's, you say, yeah, there's not really much you can do about it, but you don't see Yadier Molina called for that. You know, (laughs) you didn't see Jan Gomes called for that. It is something you just have to get a better sense of. And then since we're talking about young guys in defense, I want to bring up the play in the bottom of the eighth on the pop-up in the shallow right field when Luis Garcia takes the ball with his back to the plate instead of letting Gerardo Parra catch it. And the pitch, breaking ball is popped up. Shallow right, Parra racing in, Garcia going out. Look out, Garcia makes the catch, tagging from third Albies, and he will score. The throw in, offline, not in time. That then lets a runner tag up from third and score easily. Davey spoke afterwards about both those plays, but particularly the Garcia play. Parra was calling him off. At this level, you, sh- you should know, got in third base, outfielder calls the ball, uh, outfield catches the ball coming in. It's an easier throw for him to home plate. I don't think with Parra's arm that obviously even tries to go in that situation. But because Garcia took it with his back to the play, of course he's going to tag up, and of course he's going to end up scoring. And these are the growing pains that we're going to see more of probably over the next two months, but there are, you know, mistakes that you kind of expect from rookies and young guys and you live with them in the big leagues. And then there are mistakes that you say, 
that really shouldn't happen at all. Uh, I don't care how new you are to the big leagues. That's not a play that you should be making. You should know as a second baseman that your right fielder is calling you off, and in that spot, you have to defer to him. Yeah, I mean, that's baseball 101. You always let the guy coming in take precedent over you if you're going out because the guy coming in is almost always going to have an easier play. I mean, that that's not even, to me, a function of being young. Like, you learn that dummy me knew that playing uh, for Georgetown prep in the 90s. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like that's basic baseball. The guy coming in has the right of way, essentially, uh, in terms of defensive traffic in the sport. Uh, yeah, that was a weird play. I was surprised that it went down like that. Garcia knows better than that. Like, he's smarter than that. I could see a young Al Galdi running over some teammates chasing down pop-ups. I could see that. I was like a Michael A. Taylor or Danny Espinosa. I could field okay. I was a terrible hitter. I was an awful hitter. So, yeah, that was me. Maybe that's why I sympathize with Victor Robles so much, because I see myself in Robles in, in a much different way. I'm just like, Victor, do it for me, please. Start hitting, please. Uh, anyway, speaking of Victor, uh, he did not hit well on Friday night. Uh, 0 for 4 with a couple of strikeouts. Josh Bell, 0 for 2, did draw two walks. Yadiel Hernandez, 2 for 4 with two singles. I did want to mention this too. Alcides Escobar had the most Alcides Escobar-esque double you'll ever see. So Alcides... I don't know that he's 100% right now. He's had some errors recently, although he did make a nice defensive play on Friday night. He's been back out there as an at-starting shortstop these last few games. He goes one for four with a double. The double is a leadoff opposite field double to right field on what was essentially a defensive swing on a pitch away in that Nationals one-run fourth inning. Like, that to me is all CD's Escobar, putting the ball in play, not even necessarily trying to hit a double, but just kind of doing an excuse-me thing of, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swing defensively. You put the ball in play, and you end up getting a double out of it. Like, that to me is Alcides Escobar to a T as a batter. Yeah, and you know what? It's not the worst thing in the world to be able to do that. Bat to ball skills, and you said it earlier, that's what the Braves did all night. Freddie Freeman just sticks out his bat and finds the hole on the left side of the infield. Other guys did it as well. So you don't want nine hitters like that in your lineup, but it's okay to have one or two who do that, especially near the top of a lineup. And I give him credit. He does that fairly well. And like you said, no, he's not thinking double, but... If you put the bat on the ball, good things can happen. When you don't put the bat on the ball, nothing good can happen. So as much as we say, oh, it's about launch angle and, you know, we don't want to encourage ground balls and all that. Well, sometimes you put a little pressure on the defense and it's okay for some hitters to do that. And I think that is his style of play and that works for him. And for the most part, since he's been here this year, I think he's done that effectively. Yeah, I mean, he was a part of those back-to-back American League pennant-winning Royals teams, 2014-2015, and those teams were notorious for that, just putting the baseball in play, and uh, Escobar, obviously, is emblematic of that. Nat Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You could also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season 
for Saison and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park and make sure you stop by Silver Branch located in Metro Plaza just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. Tickets for the remainder of the 2021 Fredericksburg National season are on sale now. They have promotions for every night of the week, like $2 Tuesdays, Thirsty Thursdays, Firework Fridays, and Giveaway Sundays. If you can't make it to the game in person, you can listen to a free online radio broadcast on the Fred Nats Baseball Network or watch a live video stream with a subscription to MILB.TV. Stop by the box office or visit FredNats.com for ticket information and see the future stars of the Washington Nationals today. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Fetty leading forward, glove on the left knee, ball in his pitching hand behind his back as he gets signs from Barrera. Now comes set. The kick in the pitch. Line to right. That's going to be a base hit. Charging his para. One run will score. Second run to the plate, and the throw is not in time. Freeman scores in behind Solaire. Stopping at second was Riley, and on at first with a single and two runs batted in is Duval. And the Braves lead two to nothing. Well, speaking of putting the baseball in play, uh, that was an issue when it came to Eric Fetty on the mound on Friday night. He was an at starting pitcher in this 8-4 loss at Atlanta, and he ends up with another rough outing. Five runs, four earned in four and two-thirds innings, and it was simply just a matter of allowing too much contact. I mean, there was certainly an element of bad luck here. He gave up eight hits, but seven of the eight hits were singles. So it's not like he got smashed all over the ballpark. I'm sympathetic to Eric in that regard. He only issued one walk in the outing, but he also only had three strikeouts in the outing. He threw 57 strikes versus 36 balls in the outing. And, you know, things, this is what happens when you allow contact. Like, you can get done like this, where the variance of the batted ball is such that it ends up doing you wrong. And that's what happened here 
in this game for Fetty. Two runs in the bottom of the first on four singles. You know, that's not something you see often, including a two-out bases loaded two-run single by Adam Duvall. But like you go back and you look at the specifics of that inning, the second single given up by Fetty was a total cheapy. Freddie Freeman hitting a slow multi-hop grounder that like makes its way toward third base where nobody was due to a shift. Like that's not really a hit, but it was a hit. It was one of four singles in that inning. And then came that bottom of the fifth inning, three runs, two earned. The shame of this inning is that Fetty retires the first two batters of the inning, and then comes that two-out catcher's interference error on Tres Barrera. And, you know, I'm not a big believer in momentum, but if you are, this inning is an example of that because the momentum seemingly uh, swung off that Barrera catcher's interference miscue. Fetty then allowed five consecutive Braves batters to reach base with two outs. Freddie Freeman had a two-out first-pitch single. Austin Riley, a two-out first-pitch game-tying RBI single. Dansby Swanson had a two-out RBI single on an 0-2 pitch. Adam Duvall had a two-out RBI double on a 1-2 pitch. And that ended up being it for Fetty. He ends up giving up, again, four earned runs, five total runs in four and two-thirds innings. You know, it's interesting what can happen with official scoring. None of the runs on Kyle Finnegan were earned in the other game. But in this game, there was an error, and yet two of the runs end up being earned on Fetty in this game. Like, it's not like he was totally off the hook because of that Tres Pereira catcher's interference error. I thought that was interesting from a scoring standpoint, but Fetty's performance is uh, is the bigger item. Two of the three runs that inning, yeah, were charged to him. And I honestly, I think that makes more sense than the, you know, Finnegan not being charged with any. Like, yes, in theory, the error doesn't happen, the inning's over, but you can still be responsible for everything that happened after that. It's your job as a pitcher is to ultimately get out after that. And if you're d- giving up rockets, then you deserve to be charged with those runs. So that's a whole nother discussion for another day. Although the way this season is going, we might need to have that discussion one (laughs) night to help fill some time. Here's the stat on Fetty. You mentioned it about the, uh, what was it? Seven of the eight hits were singles. Six of the eight hits off him had an exit velocity under 92 miles an hour. 92 isn't that hard. Like 95 and up is a well-struck ball. So only two of the hits off him were quote unquote well-struck. And only one of them was really well-struck. So he was nickel and dime throughout the whole game. But the other point you made, and I think this is important, is he wasn't striking guys out. And think back to when he's been at his best this year, especially during that stretch earlier on when he had the 20 consecutive scoreless innings. He became a strikeout pitcher for the first time in his career, really, using the cutter especially. But he was getting swings and misses for the first time in a long time. In the first inning in this game, he threw 30 pitches. He finally got his first swing and miss on the final pitch the strikeout of Peterson to end the inning. Yeah, it's one thing to induce weak contact, and sometimes that can work for you. But ultimately, especially when you get into a jam, you got to be able to miss bats. And when he's been good this year, he has been able to miss bats. And in this game, he didn't. So it was a strange start for him. He was kind of down in the dumps afterwards, and he admitted, hey, you know what? A couple days from now, I'll look back on it and say, yeah, you know what? I actually pitched well, and I just had bad results. But in the moment, it doesn't feel like it. And I do think there's something to take away from it, which is weak contact is nice. But swings and misses are even better than weak contact. I agree. You know, there's a thing that you will hear analysts say, especially like anti-analytics analysts, and they'll say, well, he pitches to contact. And that's wonderful if the contact that you allow ends up going right to fielders or at the very least is contact that's converted into outs. But you can't dictate where the contact ends up going. That's why we talk about the variance of the batted ball. We talk about getting babbit, you know, because it's like once contact is made, it's out of your hands, bro. And like, you don't know where the baseball is going to go. So yes, like it's wonderful if you induce weak contact, like that is a thing. And you do want to try to do that. 
But even if you do that, that doesn't guarantee you anything. And so you want to be able to miss bats. That's why popping the mitt is so vital. That's why so many general managers, and Mike Rizzo is certainly one of them, are so fixated on velocity because missing bats is so valuable. And if you don't miss bats, you can get in trouble, even when you pitch pretty well, even when you give up a lot of weak contact, because something like what happened to Eric Fetty in this game can happen. Like, did Eric Fetty pitch as poorly as that final line suggests? Five runs, four earned, and four and two-thirds innings? Probably not. But that's what the outing ended up being because the Braves did such a good job of putting balls in play and the weak contact that was induced just ended up playing out in a way that a lot of those balls ended up being hits and there was nothing Eric Fetty could do about that. Yeah, and like I said, he's at his best when he is missing bats. Now, yeah, you want weak contact too. Now, the one thing I would say to that is, the one thing I believe a pitcher can control when it comes to that, and it goes hand in hand with defense, is if you have your infield shifted to one side, then you should pitch to your defense. And you, we do see this too often where the infield is shifted around to say the right side and a pitcher is throwing a left-handed hitter down and away. And if a, that hitter puts that ball in play, where's he going to hit it? To the opposite field, which is wide open because that's not where the shift is. So the pitcher and his defense need to be on the same page and you can get weak contact, but you can sort of attempt to get the ball hit to where your fielders are. So there is some of that, that good pitchers can do. But ultimately, yes, missing bats is more important than anything. The worst thing you can do is give up hard contact. If you're going to be a step better than that, you give up weak contact. But a step better than that is not giving up any contact at all. And he did not have that very much in this game. No, and it's interesting you say that Fetty was down on himself after the game because Fetty's season has, you know, I don't know if unraveled is the right word, but it's not what it was. He was having a really nice breakthrough season. His ERA at one point this year was 333. And, you know, he had that 20 consecutive scoreless innings run. And we were like, wow, Eric Fetty is becoming the guy he was drafted to be when the Nats took him with a first round pick all the way back in 2014. He's had a lot of unfortunate things happen, like, you know, testing positive for COVID-19 despite being vaccinated. He had that stint on the 10-day injured list with a left oblique strain. Since coming off the 10-day IL, Eric Fetty over seven starts has allowed 26 earned runs in 32 innings. And, you know, there are things to like here and there, but ultimately, Seven start stretch, 26 earned runs in 32 innings. His season has really gotten off track, and his ERA for the year now is 515. I mean, that's worse than what John Lester's ERA was for the Nats this season. Like, just to put that into perspective, 515 now is Eric Fetty's ERA on the year. So, all of this talk we had about, well, Eric Fetty, you know, he's blossoming, and hey, Eric Fetty, he's finally arrived. Can't say that no more. The guy, as it turns out, at least as things are right now, he's not having such a good season. And it's why more and more, and this will be another discussion for another day as well, but I'm thinking to myself, they're going to need to go out and get a starting pitcher this winter, at least one. If they think they can go into next year with Strasburg, Corbin, Gray, Ross, and Fetty, and those are your five, and knowing that Cavalli's maybe coming up at some point, that to me is kind of dangerous. They're going to need one more sure thing, reliable starting pitcher. They don't have to spend a ton of money on him, but I do think they're going to need somebody else who you know what you're going to get and not one of these, well, we hope he's this, but if it doesn't work out, he's not going to be that. And they they have too many of those as it is. There's too many unknowns. I think they need one known guy. I don't know who that will be. I haven't even begun to look at what the free agent market's going to be, but I think they're going to need to spend at least a little bit of money. Even if they're not necessarily trying to win next year, I think they're going to need somebody else with some experience in the rotation. Yeah, or maybe pull off some kind of a trade. I mean, you mentioned Strasburg. I would not count on him. 
And if he happens to pitch next year, great. But I think they have to totally change their mindset on him. Like, I I don't think you include him in any future plans. And if he comes back and is wonderful for you, then that's outstanding. We'll celebrate that. But I think you really have to take a worst case scenario approach to the Strasburg thing. I just, I don't know how anyone can be optimistic with what he's going through. Uh, we, We wish him the best, but that is a tough procedure that he had to undergo. I said that Fetty allowed five consecutive Braves batters to reach base after the Barrera miscue. Uh, It was four because the fifth guy got on thanks to Sam Clay. Uh, Sam Clay relieved Eric Fetty in that Braves three-run fifth inning. Did get the final out, but not before walking the first batter he faced, Jock Peterson. And I don't know about you, Mark, but this really has emerged as a thing with this Nationals bullpen. These guys come into these games and they issue walks. And it's just, you're like, this is the last thing you want to see from a bullpen is guys come into the game and not throw strikes. And every game, it feels like this happens. Multiple Nationals relievers are summoned, and they issue walks. Now, in this game, Clay ended up pitching one-third of a scoreless inning. Our guy, Gabe Klobositz, tossed a scoreless bottom of the sixth, although he gave up a leadoff double. And Andres Machado tossed a perfect bottom of the seventh. So it's not like the bullpen was a total mess in this game. But Javi Guerra did have real problems in that bottom of the eighth inning. Three runs on two singles, two walks, and a sack fly. I'm not sure where the Nationals' bullpen ranks this year in terms of issuing walks, but it does seem to me like game in, game out, there are multiple walks issued by Nats relievers. I mean, even in this game, four Nats relievers, they combine to issue four walks. That's got to be something that drives Davey Martinez nuts. And their leadoff walks, Al. They're the first batter they face when they come in, whether it's a starting inning or whether it's in Clay's case after he's coming in with it already in a jam. And they're very often, you know, five pitch walks. It's not a nine pitch, really good battle. The guy fouled off some tough three, two pitches, then finally took a borderline pitch for ball four. No, they're falling behind three and oh, three and one, and then giving them free passes. And yes, that drives the manager nuts. If you're going to get beat, get beat with hits, not on walks, especially to the first hitter that you're facing. It is absolutely a problem. It's something they've got to be better at. And, you know, Sam Clay, we've seen a lot of him now, and especially over the last month, it has not been good. His ERA, speaking of ERAs, is up to 580, and this is a guy who's been with them all season long and has something like 43 appearances now. That's not going to get the job done. You know, Javi Guerra, look, he is what he is, and he's not part of the future, but they need somebody who can give him innings at this point in the season, and so he's back for that. So that's fine. He's not He's not going to be pitching in situations of real consequence over others who need it. And the bottom of the eighth of this game was not significant. But guys like Clay, guys like Machado, certainly Finnegan, Rainey when he comes back, Voth when he comes back, all these guys have got to show that they can get through some clean innings and especially first batter, throw strikes and make them beat you. Don't just give them free passes to start a rally. Game two for the Nationals at the Atlanta Braves. Saturday night at 7.20, Josiah Gray will be making a second start for the Nats. So regardless of the outcome of Saturday night's game, this will be a worthwhile game paying attention to because Josiah will be pitching. Charlie Morton is going for the Braves. You know, I think we all agree Josiah did a nice job in his outing on Monday night. One run in five innings. Certainly wasn't perfect, but that's a nice uh, building block upon which you can hopefully be even better moving forward. The Braves are not a great team, but the Braves do have a lineup. I mean, they have guys who can hit. And if you go by run differential, the Braves are by far the best team in the National League this season. So this will be a good test for Josiah. And, you know, I don't think the Nats are going to necessarily push him to go eight innings on Saturday night, but maybe they push him a little more than what we saw uh, this past Monday night. 
Yeah, I want to see him now against this lineup because it is a tougher one. He's facing Freddie Freeman and Dansby Swanson and Austin Riley. I mean, let's see how he handles that because that is a stiffer challenge. I'm also interested to see, do they push him a little bit? You know, again, we talked last time that he hasn't thrown a lot this year, really, in his career. So they are going to be monitoring that. And I wouldn't be surprised if they still hold him to, you know, the 90 pitch range, something like that. And this is the Braves lineup that can make you throw 90 pitches in five innings very easily. So I want to see how he handles those big spots. But, you know, an important one for him, and they're all going to be important, but especially when you're facing a tougher lineup with some really good veteran hitters, I think we're going to learn a lot about Josiah Gray in this start. You can always email us here at the Nats Chat Podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. A public service announcement from Eric Murto, who emailed us saying, uh, in these days of games in which results don't mean much, your audience may be interested in a meaningful game. USA Baseball is playing Japan for the gold medal 6 a.m. Saturday. If there were spectators allowed, this would be a huge event in Japan. Uh, yeah, that's exciting. And 6 a.m. Uh, for some of us with young children, that's like lunchtime. So, uh, yes, we can enjoy some meaningful baseball on Saturday. So thank you for that reminder there, Eric. Got this email from Aaron Sharp. He says, now, obviously, the key to the rest of the season is seeing the development of the Nats young core at the major league level. Knowing this, would the Nats consider having Cade Cavalli skip AAA for the sake of getting him major league experience in September? That's a pretty big gap to jump, but guys have done it before. Also, is it crazy to be somewhat okay, maybe even happy with losses as long as the young core looks good? Having higher draft picks could help instantly boost the strength of the Nationals' prospect capital. Uh, Aaron, you are speaking my language with that latter portion of the email. Absolutely, it's okay to be happy with the young core guys doing well. That matters far more than the outcomes of these games. But Cavalli, Mark, what do you think? Would they entertain the notion of him skipping AAA, or do you think that's still a step that Mike Rizzo wants Cade Cavalli to take? Well, first, real quick to that that other part of the question. Absolutely, we should be focusing on what the young guys do. That should always be the priority. I would not endorse a trying-to-lose strategy to get a better draft pick. I don't think they're quite there. I don't know that that's what the organizational philosophy is. If it happens, it happens. But I don't think they're actively tanking for the purpose of getting a draft pick. And honestly, in baseball, teams don't do that. The pick order doesn't matter nearly as much like in football. No, unless we're talking about the number one pick when it was Strasburg or Harper. It really is not significant. So I just want to make that point. As far as Cavalli goes, when we talked to Rizzo, and this was before the sell-off, and this is when they were still having that sort of dual path, which way are we going to go? And I asked him about Cavalli. And without saying for certain that he's not going to be in the big leagues this year, he kind of hinted that he did not expect him to be in the big leagues this year, that they're watching his innings that there are still things that he needs to learn and refine and that he's going off a lot of stuff right now, but he's learning how to pitch as he gets up to higher levels and learning that double A is harder than single A. And he's still striking out a lot of batters, so that's great. But he is far from a finished product. We remember how quickly Steven Strasburg came up, and we have to remember that that was a truly unique case of someone who was big league ready that quickly and who did still go to AAA. I mean, he started his professional career in double A. It was like five starts in double A and then five or six in triple A. And then he was up. But Cavalli, after not really pitching last year, his college career was kind of cut short because of the pandemic as well. He just needs to go out and pitch every fifth day. And so I don't think there's a whole lot of benefit to rushing it to get him up here this year. I think they want him to finish this year at double A. I think they then want to send him to the Arizona Fall League, which is a good, a good test for him against top prospects. And then come to spring training next year. And now you decide. Is he actually ready or maybe a few starts AAA before you call him up? And that's when I was talking about the rotation going to next year. That's why I do think there's probably a need 
for another veteran because you don't want to be in a spot where you feel compelled to put Cavalli in the big league rotation until you're absolutely sure he's ready for it. There is no reason to rush this. They're not trying to win now. They're not trying to win probably next year. If he's ready for it, you do it. If he's not, don't have him learn on the job up here. Make sure that he gets the chance to learn in a lower pressure environment. Yeah, and also you're starting a service time clock early if you start him with a team uh, next season. MLB Pipeline, by the way, on Friday came out with a new list of the top 100 prospects in baseball off removing players who had lost prospect eligibility due to being in the majors. Some of the Nats' prospect rankings remain the same, but just to update you, there are four of the top 100 prospects in the sport belonging to the Nationals. Uh, Key Bear Ruiz now is the number 39 prospect in all of baseball. Josiah Gray is number 40. Cade Cavalli comes in at number 75, and Jackson Rutledge is in the top 100 at number 87. Well, I mentioned the catcher, Bear Ruiz. He maybe slash probably is the next big Nats prospect who will be called up to the majors. When might that be? He's playing for AAA Rochester right now. The voice of the Rochester Red Wings, Josh Wetzel, with an update on the Nats AAA affiliate, including what's going on with Bear Ruiz. Hey, guys, just a quick update for you on how the Rochester Red Wings are doing. At the moment I'm taping this, the Wings are 32-44 and on the season in fifth place in the Northeast Division of AAA East. And I'm sure you're probably wondering how some of the newcomers to the organization are doing, most notably K-Bert Ruiz, who was part of the Trey Turner and Max Scherzer deal. And Ruiz, the young catcher from Venezuela, has gone two for eight with a home run so far in a couple of games for Rochester. Lane Thomas, the outfielder who was acquired from the Cardinals for John Lester, has played three games for the Wings and is five for 13 with a home run and also a walk-off RBI single to win the game for the Wings on Thursday night. The Wings have been hitting the ball pretty well now for the better part of the last month and a half or so, and one of the leaders in that regard is Jake Knoll. Now, the last two or three games, he's gone into what I would call a little mini slump. In fact, he just went back-to-back games without a hit for the first time since the end of May, but on the season, he's third in the league in hits, and right now batting 319, which is also third in the league in batting average. Another guy who's hit the ball really well is Daniel Polka, whom the Nationals signed to a minor league deal very shortly before the season began. He's currently in the top 10 in the league and on base percentage, slugging percentage, and OPS. has been a very consistent force in the middle of the Wings lineup. Pitching-wise, the team's ERA is a shade over five, and right now 17th in a 20-team league, which is right about where it's been for most of the season. Probably the most effective starting pitcher right now is veteran left-hander Sean Nolan. Got a no decision on Thursday night though he went six shutout innings over his last six starts. Nolan has an ERA of 2.90, so he's been pitching well. Aaron Barrett, uh, I know a popular guy among Nationals fans, recently promoted from AA Harrisburg. He was on the sidelines at the beginning of the season with a knee injury. He's pitched very effectively for the Red Wings, only one run allowed in five and two-thirds innings. And Diego Moreno is another name maybe to mention, a veteran right-hander whom the Nationals signed out of the indie ball ranks uh, early in the season. He recently joined Rochester and has struck out six men in five and a third innings and has only allowed one run. He's looked really good. He's been throwing in the mid-90s. And uh, again, Moreno has a little bit of major league experience with the Yankees and Tampa Bay. He's a guy that maybe is uh, is someone to keep an eye on with the Red Wings. This is Josh Wetzel, broadcaster for the Rochester Red Wings with a AAA update. All right. So we thank Josh uh, for that update. MOB.com had an interesting article on Friday. Uh, the idea being one prospect each team should call up. And to probably nobody's surprise, Kiber Ruiz uh, was the guy 
who MLB.com, and I, I guess is more MLB pipeline, the prospect arm of MLB.com, labeled as a guy uh, who the Nats should call up. Probably not going to happen like right now because the Nats has brought up Riley Adams, so it looks like it's a Barrera-Adams timeshare catcher for the moment. But what do you think? By like September, Mark, we might see Kiber Ruiz at the major league level? Yeah, I think so. And I think there is value in that as opposed to Cavalli. Now, remember, Ruiz did make his major league debut for the Dodgers. It wasn't for long, but he was up briefly with them. I think he is probably a little bit more polished. He's spent considerable time at AAA now. And if you really are looking at him as being the the number one catcher next year, well, now's a great time to get him that experience, get him working with some of the starters and some of the other pitchers he's going to be catching next year. So it's not like he's showing up at spring training and learning them for the first time. So I do think there is value in that in a way that's different from Cavalli. And my guess, you know, I'll just, I'll say September 1st, but I could see it happening before that. Uh, it doesn't have to be that long, depending on how he's doing there. And, uh, and frankly, how Barrera and uh, Adams are doing here. We've only seen a little bit of Riley Adams, so it's a little too soon to judge him. But I think everybody acknowledges that Ruiz is the top prospect of them all when it comes to catchers. And at some point you do want to see him up here. If slash when Alex Avila is ever ready to play again, I mean, it's amazing how long he's been out with the bilateral calf strains and then COVID-19. And I'm not saying that like he's milking it. I'm just saying it's, wow, he's been out for a long time. Do you think they're going to bring him back? Like, is there a point at this point to having Alex Avila on their active major league roster? Well, I would say you wouldn't think so, but then they're still finding ways to get Gerardo Parr into the lineup on a regular basis. So here's what I would say to that. I do think there is some value in having some veterans on a roster with all these young guys to mentor them. It's not about saying, oh, well, they need to play ahead of them because they're going to help you win. No, they need guys to learn from. It's not just from the coaching staff. It has to come from veterans too. And for as many young catchers as they're now trying to develop, maybe it's not the worst thing to have Alex Avila, who's a good, solid defensive catcher who's been through it all in his career, to have that as being your guy that can help you through all this. So I don't know what's going to happen there, but it wouldn't shock me if he comes back at least for a while and I don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing. No, he shouldn't be getting a bulk of the game starting behind the plate, but there is some value in having someone like that on your roster to teach the young guys. And, you know, guys like him, guys like Para, there is a role they can play the rest of the way. And Avila could spell Luis Garcia at second base. Well, there is that too, yes. There's real value in that. One more email real quick. Andy in Stockholm, Sweden as the international reach of the Nats Chat podcast never ceases to amaze, writes Andy, I've really enjoyed listening to the pod this season. Continuing on the recent trend of emails from Europe, I am pretty confident that I'm your only listener here in Sweden. Uh, he goes on to write a very nice email, and he details his schedule during the Nationals' 2019 World Series run. He says, in Europe, you know, he's taking all this in, he took post-work naps to wake back up and watch every game starting at 2 a.m. local time in Berlin sometimes finishing around 6 a.m. before a quick catnap again before the 7 a.m. work commute. Brutal sleep schedule that month, but 100% worth it in the end. That right there is a national soldier, a nationals warrior. This guy waking himself up at 2 a.m., watching the games until 6 a.m., napping until 7 a.m., and then going into work. What a job by Andy. That sounds like an Al Galdi kind of schedule, actually, <laughs> from what I know of yours. No, hey, great job, Andy. That is dedication. And we kind of laugh about this, but there are Nationals fans all over the world, literally all over the world. We've seen it in our analytics of who listens to this podcast. I've seen it in where I get clicks from, from people reading my articles. I've known it from years. I've, I've heard from fans literally all around the globe. There are a lot of people with ties to D.C. that don't live here anymore. 
and still feel a connection to the team. And if we can play a small role in helping connect them to this and give them the kind of uh, analysis that they're not going to find on local radio in Stockholm, sports talk radio in Stockholm, then we're happy to do that for you. And we appreciate the fact that you're listening to us at all hours of the day. Let us know where you're listening from. NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet us as well at Nats underscore chat. Remember, you can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt and represent the Nats Chat Podcast in Sweden or wherever you happen to be listening. Uh, You can get your shirt by going to NatsChatPodcast.square.site. That's NatsChatPodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Craig Turner making his Dodger debut, his very first at-bat, with a score of 2-2 two two in the bottom of the ninth. He is welcomed by a long and loud standing ovation. Turner, 3-22, 18 home runs, 49 runs batted in. Swings and fouls it off to the left, and it's 0-1. Turner likely to start tomorrow at second base. On 0-1, Turner pops it up. Right in front of the plate. Now a couple of steps behind the plate. Max Stassi nearly tripped over his mask. He makes the catch. And that is the first down at the bottom of the ninth.